Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. This week we saw Captain Marvel, the hottest movie of this particular week. Um, Starring Brie Larson, it's a superhero origin story about an amnesiac Air Force pilot who becomes a superpowered alien warrior. Uh, So while chasing a squad of shape-shifting alien Skrulls, she crash lands back on Earth in the 1990s where she meets up with S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, and begins to regain her memories. So this is one of those episodes where we take on our typical roles of me as the Pollyanna who quite enjoyed the film and Morgan was just like, Uh, This sucked. I think (laughs) that this was a completely average MCU movie. There's been a lot of controversy over the fact that it stars a woman, and I know people are highly invested in Captain Marvel's role as like a kind of feminist pop culture icon. I just think it was average. Average, reasonably enjoyable, somewhat unmemorable Marvel movie. I thought it was bad. (laughs) It was a bad film. I did not like it. For context, um, I watch every superhero movie for for critical purposes. So I have watched a lot of worse ones. Morgan just now has, has the freedom to peace out. So she has not watched any bad superhero movies recently. She has only seen Black Panther and Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> but do you think that if I had seen those bad ones... I would not just think that all of them were bad. I think you, I think, you think you would. I think you would. Um, but you're also not someone, you're not the audience of people who think that every Marvel movie is great. Oh, I, <laughs> that is certainly true. I think I just have very high standards. So, you know, I dislike a lot of things. It is, however, very true that the ones I don't want to see, I do not see. For instance, the Ant-Man films. I have not viewed... I did not see the most recent Avengers movie. I will not see the next Avengers movie. I do not care. I watched this film because it was starring a woman, and I knew that we should talk about it on the podcast. And I felt very irritated for most of the runtime because I sat sat there thinking to myself, the only reason I am watching this is because it's starring a woman, and Marvel has tricked me into paying money for this film. And you like Brie Larson a lot. Because they cast a woman. (laughs) I do like Brie Larson a lot, but I did not like any of the trailers for this film. And it was totally just that I was like, well, I should support my fellow womankind. And then I thought the movie was bad. And so I felt sort of irritated about that whole situation. But what can you do? You have to vote with your dollars, I guess. Yes. And the good news is no matter what anyone says about this movie, including critics and weird sexist mantras on the internet, this movie is a huge fucking success. There is a bunch of other female-led superhero movies in the works at the moment um, from various studios. So I think we're now at the point where one can vocalise some criticisms against this without undermining the entire process of feminism in Hollywood, which is how some people have been treating any criticism of this film on the internet, unfortunately. (laughs) Yes, it has been sort of interesting in a not positive way to watch the whole thing unfold online. I was at this film with a friend last night, and I made some vague allusion to the fact that it has been very controversial, and she didn't know what I was talking about, and I thought, oh god, imagine, imagine living in that world where, you know. It's like, but there's also like, um, I've definitely seen some social media posts from people who've been like, obviously most people are not aware of this fucking nonsense controversy because it's just all taking place on YouTube and Rotten Tomatoes, which most people don't give a shit about. But I've also seen some posts from people who like have spoken to someone who's outside this sphere, but have become aware of the criticism. And they're like, oh yeah, like I heard Captain Marvel is just really bad and like a huge ripoff of Iron Man kind of thing. So these things do penetrate. And then obviously the people who hear about them secondhand aren't aware that it's part of like a weird essentially Gamergate campaign because that's how information spreads like you see some YouTube headline that's like oh Brie Larson hates men it's just all complete nonsense but um Uh, yeah 
I don't think we need to go into any particular detail about that, but like I think basically the headline of my review that I published at the Daily Dot for this was that A, this film is just really average for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and B, it's completely nuts that this is being treated as controversial political content. Because although there are some kind of feminist themes in there, obviously the fact that it has a female lead is meaningful, um, even though there are obviously now many action movies starring white women in the lead role. <laughs> but um, but like there are some feminist themes, like the kind of the her her main journey is that she's kind of overcoming essentially gaslighting and being undermined by her male mentor. And we know that she's experienced some sexism um, in the Air Force since she was a pilot in the 1980s. Um, but it's definitely not like a feminist movie in the way that Wonder Woman was kind of with explicit political kind of social commentary. And that's fine, you know, but it, it's just, there's nothing radical happening here. <laughs> People need to calm the fuck down. <laughs> yes, that is certainly true. I do want to compare it more to Wonder Woman a bit later, which feels unfair in some ways and also inevitable in other ways. But um, I think we should talk more about the film itself first. So the basic setup of this movie, as you said at the top, is that this character who is Carol Danvers, as anyone who's familiar with this character knows, but is called Veers for most of the film because that's her like identity on this alien planet winds up on earth and is sort of suffering from amnesia and is having these sort of strange memories of time on earth and is trying to figure out what's going on and is hunting down this this woman played by Annette Benning who was working on this secret military project the MacGuffin. in America correct and she winds up sort of with Samuel L. Jackson and they are kind of this buddy team the central problem with this setup is that She's an amnesiac. And so the whole movie is her trying to figure out, like, who she is. But it doesn't really have the urgency of The Born Identity, which is, like, the best amnesiac movie. Because it's, like, it, oh, yeah. it, it has so much forward momentum. Whereas in this, it's not really like she's particularly trying to regain her memories very hard for most of it. Um, which kind of, yeah, it just kind of, like, trips up the speed a little bit. And it's, yeah, her motives are a bit kind of wishy-washy. So I haven't seen The Boring Entity in a long time. That hadn't, I hadn't been thinking about that, but that's obviously a really good com comparison because that definitely is sort of the most famous and successful um, amnesiac movie. He is so obviously like a traumatized person and he behaves very much like a traumatized person. Like he's really, really fucked up and knows that something is wrong and he's kind of doing things almost inadvertently that he doesn't really understand why he's doing them and needs to figure out why. Whereas in this, she has complete control over everything. And when she's remembering things, clearly he's kind of upset by them, but it's not, it just isn't on the same level of like, oh my God, what the fuck is going on? And not that it's going to be the same movie, of course, but it's just sort of like, oh, I gotta figure this problem out. It's kind of like the film didn't want to dig into more intense emotional themes because the character... Carol Danvers' personality is this sort of like easygoing, charming, flyboy, charismatic character, which I, I just found Brie Larson really charming in this role. And I enjoyed that she was just sort of smirky. Um, and it was just like a kind of role that you really don't see for women very much. But at the same time, um, in terms of like emotional depth, the story really lacked the kind of intensity we see with, I mean, the most direct comparison is obviously Stephen Bucky in the Captain, Mar Captain America movies, right? 
Um, and it just doesn't have that at all, partly because we didn't get enough scenes with her and Maria, which is the big kind of love story relationship of this film. Um, and I think it's also quite clear that they filmed some and cut them out and they should have just fucking kept the, the flashbacks in, whatever they were. I mean, the big problem is that there's all this stuff from her past that they're alluding to, but they show you almost none of it. And so it's like there's this whole other part of the movie that doesn't exist. Yeah, and the marketing focused really heavily on her kind of earthbound life and the Air Force as well, which is something I've written about because this film, the film's marketing campaign was very heavy on the Air Force content, more so than the military content of previous films. I have don't read comics and was obviously aware of Captain Marvel as a character. Like she was really, really popular during the um, Kelly Sue DeConnick run of comics several years ago and watched a couple of the trailers for this, but I don't read a ton about movies before they come out on purpose. I don't want to get spoiled. And I thought the way the movie was set up was that it was going to take place like on earth and that her flashbacks were to the alien stuff because the marketing was so heavily the Air Force stuff. And so then when it was the reverse, I was like, what is happening? Like, this is so bizarre. And then you have the sort of stuff with her friend, Maria, and like they have this big reunion and it's supposed to be very emotional. And that actress is very good and it is a good scene. But because you don't have any previous context, you're like, I felt anyway, like, okay, Sure. Yeah, like all of the kind of emotional stuff in that scene had to just happen in my head. Like I had brain fanfic that was making that scene better than it actually was on screen. Right. Or like the actresses had to completely do all of it in that moment, right? As opposed, which I mean, obviously you want the actresses to be good regardless, but they couldn't be building off of anything except that they clearly did film a lot of that stuff and then not put it in the movie. Or there were numerous references to like her childhood and her parents that then they didn't explain at all and plenty of these characters they don't like go deep into their childhood backstories and that's totally fine but it felt very weird for me to have that in there without any explanation and that I felt like they almost certainly filmed stuff and then cut it out like why not just not have it it just was disorienting to me and so I just found that the whole thing very kind of con- not literally confusing in the sense that I didn't know what was happening, but it felt like there was this whole other thing that was supposed to be there and then it wasn't. And then you're kind of coming in in the middle of the story and that was not very engaging to me because I I thought I love Brie Larson. I think she's an amazing actress. If anyone, you know, watched and liked this, which I'm sure most of you did. I highly recommend her movie Short Term 12. I think it was her first lead role. Um, she was totally amazing in that film. It's so, so, so good. Um, and everyone else in it is people too. that everyone loves. <laughs> so, <laughs> Lakeith Stanfield is in it. Rami Malek is in it. Um, John Gallagher Jr. is in it. It's just an incredible, incredible film. She's obviously great in Room, which she won an Oscar for. But I did not find her engaging in this. And I didn't think she was terrible, but I think it's just that the character felt so kind of not there to me because she doesn't really know who she is in a way that wasn't that interesting. And I found the whole script very frustrating because it just felt like what is happening. I have to admit that while I did enjoy this film a lot more than Morgan, something we were talking about before we recorded is the dialogue in this movie 
is definitely not one of Marvel's best. Like the whole section, <laughs> I think it's something that like, I think most critics, even the ones who gave this really positive reviews have remarked on this film is quite slow to start. The whole section towards the beginning, um, we see her on the Kree homeworld kind of training with her squad of, you know, alien superhero warriors with Jude Law as the leader. And the whole kind of introductory segment is really just sort of her and Jude Law providing very clear-cut expository dialogue on what the scenario is. And I didn't feel like any of that was necessary because like when you... when In Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a film I actively found very obnoxious and I preferred this film much more because it's not sexist, Guardians of the Galaxy has a much wilder premise. Like it is famously one of the weirder Marvel movies. And they just introduce it with like a fun musical number and like they're like, here's a bunch of fucking weird characters and they're all in space and whatever. And in this, it's like, I don't feel like they needed to explain so much about what was going on with the fact that she was on the Kree homeworld, like the fact that she had amnesia. It all seemed abundantly clear just from watching the film and it felt like I was being talked down to a little bit. And there were definitely other moments in the film where the exposition didn't work. On the other hand, all of the stuff with um, Carol Danvers and Nick Fury was great. They had like, the double act was just really charming and very fun and they had good banter and I felt like the characters fit together in a really intuitive way that I hadn't predicted because they both just have this sort of easy sense of humour and they both have this very pragmatic attitude and kind of military background that fit together well. And it was also like a really good sort of side of Nick Fury that we hadn't seen before because in the other movies he's this sort of very powerful looming mentor figure who's quite intimidating and morally ambiguous and in this he was more youthful and fun and also because he was detached from his whole kind of hierarchy within S.H.I.E.L.D. he could just hang out with this super powerful person and they could just make jokes. Yeah so first about the the opening section Mm -hmm. of the movie with Jude Law just one of the worst things I've seen in a movie in a long time. I kept thinking, like, it reminded me of, like, a bad science fiction book from, like, the 70s, where people are just, like, explaining everything. It's like, here's what the supreme intelligence is. And it's like, you don't need right. to tell me. <laughs> with And with, like, really bad fake names for things. And just, like, and I love science fiction, but I remember I was just sitting there and I was like, if I... If this were a book and I started reading it, I would be like, no, thank you. I will not be continuing that. No, thank you. And it was a really weird way to start the film because it was so slow and kind of deadening. And that's not where the movie takes place for the most part. I mean, the rest of the movie doesn't like take place there at all. So I was really perplexed by the fact that that was what was going on. And it wasn't just one scene as a prologue. It was like 15 minutes. And oh, it just kept... Incidentally, from the kind of the marketing and photos of the premieres and so forth. Did you think that Gemma Chan was going to have a significant role in this movie? I did not know she was in it. I didn't realize she was one of the... Because I was like, going into this film, I was like, I know that sometimes this type of Hollywood movie does overemphasize the presence of a woman of color who it turns out does not have a major role. But wow, did they fucking overemphasize how much Gemma Chan was in this movie. She was not in I this movie. I genuinely <laughs> didn't even realize that was her. Yeah, she, yeah. So, she um, was, she was yeah. one of like four members of the Star Force team, all of whom had essentially equal screen time and barely any characterization whatsoever because they were, I mean, perfectly reasonable. Like they were just those characters who were part of the team, right? They don't need to have a deep characterization. But... On the red carpet, they just had Brie Larson, Gemma Chan, and Lashana Lynch, who played Maria Rambo, arm in arm. Like, those three characters were equally important in the film. And, like, fucking promote it. And I was just like, this is egregious. And, like, good on Gemma Chan for raising her profile. But, like, my God, this film was misleading. (laughs) 
bad. I yeah, had, yeah. And, that. and really like, loads of people, could, and obviously, because so many people love her, she's cool and she's in Crazy Rich Asians and whatever. Like, people share that stuff on social media so much. And they clearly, the Marvel marketing people knew what they were doing. And I was like, this is cynical as fuck. Oh, God. Which, in well, my opinion, was worse than the thing that happened with Han Solo, where. Han Solo kind of made it look like Tandy Newton had a major role, but then killed her off halfway through in a really insulting way. But at least she did have a role with like characterization. She wasn't just like, you know. I mean, as I said, <laughs> I literally did not realize she was in the movie. So that's not great. God. Yeah, unfortunate. I did enjoy Samuel L. Jackson, although I think like he's just, he's a very entertaining figure. He cracks some jokes. You know, he's a funny guy. And I thought the de-aging they did on him was not as creepy as it usually is. That's my low, low bar. Yeah, I mean, the de-aging they did on Clark, Ge- Clark Gregg as Agent Coulson was bad. He looked like a weird oh my God. <laughs> plastic mannequin. Um, terrifying. I terrifying. think the trick with Samuel L. Jackson is A, they had more content to work with from earlier films, but also B, they didn't actually try and make him look like young Samuel L. Jackson. He looked different enough from like Samuel L. Jackson 30 years ago that it kind of worked, which is something they've done with other movies where they don't try to like really directly be like, this is precisely what Robert Downey Jr. looked like. Well, my friend I went with pointed out what you said, which is there's so much footage of him as a young man, which obviously helps. And B, his big iconic role from the 90s that everyone kind of thinks of is Pulp Fiction, where he has like a crazy hair and facial hair situation (laughs) going on. So not that he wasn't doing other things also that people will remember, but like that's kind of the thing Mm -hmm. that immediately pops into your head. So I think there is a little bit of leeway that they can play with. His hair was less convincing. (laughs) The wigs. What What is with Marvel? I just don't. How is it that they're always so bad? It's not just Marvel, though. It's a plague on Hollywood. We have a lot of conversations about wigs, and it is a widespread it's problem. True. <laughs> but Marvel specifically has never had a good wig. The movie ended again, and my friend was like, her wig was so bad. And I was like, have you watched any Marvel films? Literally, literally all I just kept thinking how amazing so her blow-dried hair was, because it always goes perfect after every action scene. But I didn't realize it was a wig. I thought she just had, I thought they just were like oh, fucking going there every scene, being like, her hair must be perfectly silky. <laughs> Neither of us liked the movie very much, and we were walking back to the train after, and I was like, the one I pointed out was, like, they're in Louisiana at the friend's house, and her hair is just, like, perfect in fucking Louisiana, which is very humid. And what she kept pointing out was that she's doing all this crazy fighting, like, they're in space, and her hair is flying around, and it sort of falls back down, and it's still in its perfect, like, beach waves. (laughs) I was like, wear a ponytail. Just put it in a ponytail. It's fine. I know it's a movie. Whatever. It just was entertaining to me because that's not how this I works. I guess it's just one of her canon superpowers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. It's definitely one of Wonder Woman's canon superpowers. Well, that's the thing. Like, with Wonder Woman, it doesn't bother me at all because it's, she's just... She's a goddess. You know. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas this, I was like, no, I don't think so. Although, of course, nothing will ever beat the the Winter Soldier moment that we will be discussing shortly where <laughs> Natasha washes her hair, has wet hair, and then goes into the next scene and it's like been professionally. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's like multiple fan theories about like Sam Wilson having a pair of flat irons in his house from like an ex-girlfriend or something and lending them to Natasha so her hair could inexplicably be flat ironed in the next <laughs> scene. <laughs> oh my God. Um, we may as well 
talk about Wonder Woman a bit since I just mentioned her. Yeah. I did feel bad. I mean, this is the sort of... It's this interesting thing about this film and, like, the way to talk about it and think about it. Because, on the one hand, it feels very unfair to compare it excessively to Wonder Woman. Because it's not like it should only be compared to Wonder Woman because they are the two about women. And, as you said, obviously, there are many ways in which it can be compared to other Marvel movies. It is, in many ways, very much like them, too. And I think one of the ways in which it kind of gets tripped up is the fact that they clearly felt like they could or had to do so many tie-ins with the other MCU stuff. So not just having Nick Fury be a character, like, I thought that was totally fine. He was very fun. But there was so much in the movie that was linked to other MCU stuff because these movies are now basically just like a television Mm -hmm. show. And I think that that bogged it down somewhat. Like the best of these movies now are the films that don't try to do that at all. Like the most recent ones I've seen are Thor and Black Panther, which I think are probably the two best out of the whole franchise. And obviously Thor is a sequel, but it really doesn't have anything to do with anything at all. And Black Panther pretty much stands on its own. Whereas this, there are a number of things that are sort of awkwardly shoehorned. And also the fact that it was so emphatically marketed um, as kind of pop culture feminism. And also that is definitely the real role of Captain Marvel in the comics. Like Kelly Sue DeConnick's series has like such a cultural impact. Um, And people, I mean, obviously I know that like the majority of people who watch this movie really loved it. And I've seen some like very genuine, like intense emotional responses to this film that I personally didn't really share. But also it really makes me kind of second guess the fact that I gave this like a three and a half star review because it makes me like, I'm just like, my God, is this like internalized sexism? Am I like critiquing this too much by comparing it to Wonder Woman? But, you know, when Aquaman came out, I was comparing that very explicitly to Black Panther because they're so fucking similar in terms of concept with all the royalty stuff. And then I remember that I literally reviewed two other female-led sci-fi movies that same week. And I was like, okay, I'm probably not secretly sexist. And it is just a bit of an average <laughs> film. Because <laughs> I get so worried. It's like, I know that everyone has like their own little kind of internalized shit going on. But um, I think that in terms of like the political content of this film, um, there is a couple of aspects which we're going to discuss in a few minutes later in the kind of spoiler section. But um, I think that there was some kind of obviously explicit commentary on the fact that she's kind of being gaslighted by men in her life. Um, and obviously she has in the past, her, her like origin story is shaped by the fact that she's really had to prove herself as an independent person. And she doesn't have like this sort of military community that a man might have in this scenario. She just has this one best friend who shared her experiences. So it's integral to her origin story, but it's kind of the same way that Steve Rogers upbringing in like pre-war Brooklyn is really integral or Tony Stark's background as being this really wealthy guy with daddy issues. So it's not really the kind of woven in kind of political content that we saw in Wonder Woman. And that's not really criticism of the film. It's like, it really does just mean that it's like, now we're able to have a female-led superhero film that's the same as a male-led one. Like it really is following the same framework. But 
it was very kind of superficial and I feel like there wasn't much that I'm going to be thinking deeply about or remembering about this film because with Wonder Woman although it did have some flaws like for example the interminable final battle scene which was a real snooze fest I just found like there was so much to think about in that film like in terms of individual characterization like the kind of the relationships the main characters had with each other and the historical context was like very thoughtfully portrayed I wrote like a whole article after that film just about the decision to set that film during World War One because it's this kind of period when the kind of corporate militarization really starts to kick in and the fact that there is you're able to have weapons of mass destruction instead of people just fighting face to face that sort of thing and the contrast between her being this very moral mythical hero and then the just the complete immoral horrors of the first world war there's like so much interesting stuff to dig your teeth into as well as just the emotional and social impact of her role as a feminist hero whereas in Captain Marvel, there was some very kind of surface level stuff to do with her kind of experiencing sexism and also some stuff to do with the Kree Skrull War, which I thought was the most interesting part of the film. Um, but it really did not in any way kind of engage with the fact that it was set in the 90s. Um, it definitely didn't engage with any kind of Air Force stuff, which I was expecting, obviously. Um, it was never going to do that. But <laughs> but it was like there wasn't the meteor things that I really found thought provoking in Iron Man and Captain America. I totally agree. And I don't think Wonder Woman is a perfect movie. I think when we talked about it on this podcast, my main criticisms of it from a political standpoint were that after the sort of first opening segment on the island, she almost exclusively interacts with men for the rest of the movie, which like the movie is really great, except for that last battle part that you mentioned, but it is a little bit of a bummer that she's mostly engaging with men after that. Mm. And that, like, her whole thing is that she's, like, all about love, which just, which denudes a little bit, I think, of the political content, right? Because it's sort of not about gender relations at that point. It's more about just, like, love for humanity, which is, it just becomes a little bit squishier, I think. But I think that the, I think Patty Jenkins and, like, the people making that movie clearly had a very, very good idea of what they wanted to convey politically. And even if, like, I would have done it slightly differently, they knew what they were doing 100%. And conveyed that very, very effectively. Like, all the stuff at the beginning with the other women is so unbelievably powerful. All of the visual symbolism and the kind of the way they choreograph the fights and everything is just amazing. Yes. Then the scene later that everyone still talks about where she gets up out of the trench and goes and, like, walks towards the bullets right which is the moment where everyone is like all the women are like weeping in the audience i saw that movie twice i cried both times at that and i don't cry at movies almost ever whatever the line robin wright says at the beginning where she's like training her i can't remember anymore but i remember that was like the line that everyone quoted that i now can't remember but like my mother went and saw that movie and like signaled single that moment out to me too like it clearly they had really thought about it and um It's not that the movie is massively complicated to understand on that level because they were making it so that young girls could really grasp it, I think. But that doesn't mean that the act of creating it isn't complicated. It's a little bit like we were talking with The Sting last week. Like, it's still really hard and complex to create something that can be kind of easily digested like that. And I think that that movie, while imperfect, is a huge accomplishment in that way. And I think that this movie just, whatever its sort of themes were, I didn't really get them. Like there was some stuff going on, but it felt very muddled to me. And um, there were a couple sort of superficial like girl power moments, but 
they felt detached from any larger project to me. And it's not that this movie had to be doing exactly the same thing as Wonder Woman in terms of having a very sort of clear, pure feminist message. But I wanted more from it on that level as like the first MCU woman-led film. Like, I think it would have been nice if they could have done a little bit more with or that. Or just released this a- five years ago. <laughs> well, but if this, I mean, if this had been five years ago, like that would have been definitely more exciting. But I still think they it would have been incumbent upon them to sort of do something more with it, right? Like, Obviously, like, there's a good reason why people are very defensive of this film, um, especially people who are existing fans of the character. But I think there's like also like a very, there's perhaps like a rift between the reaction from people who already love the character and people who really have no awareness of Captain Marvel. Because I think that everyone who is a Captain Marvel fan, it's like almost uniformly, I think people are just love this film. Um, and they're very excited to see this character on screen because they already have such an attachment to her and they're able to kind of bolster some of the weaker elements of the film with stuff that they know from the comics and like they have a deeper understanding of her character. So like there's definitely stuff that shines through more if you know her well. But with Wonder Woman, I feel like there was basically an equal amount of appreciation from people who just had no fucking clue about the comics and people who were experts, you know, because I barely know anything about Wonder Woman. Like I don't really read many DC comics at all and I've read like one Wonder Woman comic. And obviously I like know more than the average person, but like I think that this film is more sort of Marvel audience rather than be- this being this huge cultural touchstone. But once again, not every film has to be. <laughs> right. And I mean, this movie is making a gazillion dollars. People are obviously very excited about it. And if you are someone who had a very like emotional affective response to this, I'm obviously not saying like you were wrong or bad or anything, of course, but it, it didn't feel to me like it was earning the sort of moments near the end where it was trying to do like feminism stuff. Like there's a sequence, a little sort of montage sequence where there's a series of cuts of her like standing up when she's been knocked down. That was clearly supposed to be like the big, you know, girl power Which, moment. But it was also was every like, trailer. So we've already seen the whole sequence because it was literally right. the whole trailer. <laughs> and I was like, I feel nothing. I feel absolutely nothing watching this. And even the stuff you were saying about um, the sort of, you know, prejudice in the military and the gaslighting and stuff. It's not that that's not in the movie, but it was not explored to the degree that I think it could have been in a way that would have been much more interesting and could have been a way for them to actually do something with this subject matter that would have been more thematically And I think they, they just chose to make it right? a more kind of lighthearted buddy cop movie, basically. That was just the creative decision they made. I mean, I'm sure that there were lots of discussions with the higher-ups. And the five writers who worked on this. Oh my god. Yeah, the title cards ran at the end, and it was like three writers and then five people on the you know, story by. And I was like, well, that explains a lot about the way this movie was, because that's too many. Yeah. That I mean, in some people. rare example, like I think Spider-Man Homecoming had like six writers, and at the time in our review, we were like, it is not normal, first of all, to have that many writers for, but also almost always that many writers means the film is just a huge, like hodgepodge jigsaw. In that case, it was like a miracle that film was good. In this case, it did just kind of feel like one of those like blockbuster films where you can kind of see the seams a little bit. Like what happened with this is the initial, like the, the story by credits and the written by credits are slightly different. So the initial script was written by Nicole Perlman, who wrote the original Guardians of the Galaxy, and Meg Lefov, who wrote um, Inside Out. And I remember they were the people who were 
hired at first to write it and then they were replaced by Geneva Robertson Dwart, who's now working on a couple of superhero films, I think, and the two directors who are Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. Um, and they got the eventual writing credits. But like it's gone through several different rewrites very clearly. And obviously it also has to tie in with the two Avengers movies on either side. So it's like there's a lot going on with the complexities of this franchise. Yeah. I mean, this this is also where I just sort of lose interest. The All the huge interconnected franchise stuff, I just don't care. I'm not interested. I don't like it. <laughs> um, and I think it's because they sort of tie down the movies in a lot of ways because they are forced to do things that a normal movie doesn't have to do, right? Well, it's also definitely the case that um, kind of the, the driving force of all of this interconnectedness is to make sure that the big Avengers crossover movies are as popular as possible and they kind of to emphasize yeah. the importance of audiences going to spend money on tickets. But also at the same time, those crossover movies are invariably less interesting than the more individual ones like Black Panther and Thor Ragnarok, where there is a very specific directorial vision, because it's impossible to have a specific directorial vision when you have to tie together like 14 franchises into a big action film. Yep. Which is why I've stopped going to see those Avengers movies, because I can't be bothered. I find them dull. But anyway, for our final section with spoilers, we're going to talk about how much we love Ben Mendelsohn, who is one of the greatest highlights of this film, a true delight as the Skrull leader Talos, who spends part of his time with a bunch of green prosthetics in his face and part of his time looking like Ben Mendelsohn. I mean, the vast majority of his time with prosthetics on his face, and I thought he was easily the best performance in this movie, which is embarrassing for everyone else. So fun. (laughs) I was, it was remarkable. It was remarkable. He was the. I thought Samuel L. Jackson was was very fun in this, and I enjoyed him. But I, the only part of it that I genuinely was just like, oh, this is wonderful. I'm so happy to see this person on the screen, or to see the green prosthetic makeup <laughs> behind which he is hidden on the screen is Ben Mendelsohn again. Remarkable because of the makeup situation. And because he's done a lot of bad villain roles recently. Yeah, he, he does a lot of bad good. villains. And in this one, also, he was allowed to remain very Australian. He was somewhat Australian in Rogue One. But in this, he was extraordinarily Australian. So so when he... Let him yeah. do his thing. Um, you know? So, like, the, the concept behind the alien content of this film um, is a long-established Marvel comic storyline, which Morgan was not aware of because she's not a nerd. Or her nerdery lies elsewhere. But it's the Kree-Scroll War is um, the... Kree are a usually blue-skinned and always blue-blooded race of warriors. And the Skrulls are kind of green monster elf kind of guys who can shapeshift and can impersonate people with kind of some of their memories. Uh, So the major storylines in the comics are either kind of space battle kind of storylines where the superheroes are kind of embroiled in this conflict, or they involve a Skrull invasion of Earth, where a bunch of Skrulls convincingly imitate main characters. So there's like big shocking reveals on who's been an alien for ages. Um, And all Marvel fans assumed that this movie was going to kick off some kind of future reveal of either a massive Skrull storyline in one of the future movies, or at least some revelation that main characters have been scrolls for some period of time, possibly since the 90s, which would be a very wild and impressive about face. And this film tied that up really neatly in a totally unexpected and unpredictable way, essentially making it quite unlikely that they're going to have a major scroll storyline in the future. Um, but basically what they had is um, 
It was very similar, actually, to the plot of the She-Ra Netflix series, which is about a blonde, super strong woman warrior who is brainwashed by a bunch of evil monsters into fighting the people who are actually good and oppressed. It's basically the same storyline as this film. Uh, but... um she when when Carol Danvers becomes part of the Kree Star Force, she is essentially being indoctrinated into taking one side of a war which she really has no understanding of at all. And her journey as she regains her memories is also a journey of her realizing um, that she's maybe not on the right side after all. So for the first half of the film, Talos and the Skrulls who have invaded Earth and are starting to impersonate people are very much the villains and the antagonists. And then once they actually get to meet face to face, instead of having one of these big bombastic battle scenes, they literally have a conversation like over a kitchen table where Talos is kind of explaining, actually, we're refugees. The reason why we're fighting the Kree is because we're constantly on the run. And I'm here because I want to help some refugees and get a power source so we can get a big spaceship and run away. Um, And so the latter half of the film is actually about Carol Danvers helping the Skrulls and kind of going into the spaceship for the kind of final sequence where she gets the MacGuffin and whatever. But it was like a really interesting twist, which I never would have predicted. And I think anyone who knows the comics wouldn't have predicted. And it also kind of adds this layer to Talos as a villain, because already Ben Mendelsohn is really fun and is a much more entertaining kind of antagonist than 99% of Marvel villains who are famously the weak point. But it's like you've got some actually kind of vaguely interesting content about her sort of military service with the uh, with the Kree. Yeah, I liked the twist. I wish they had executed it better because I felt like it could have been, if they had spent more time on that or just like all this stuff with the Kree needed to be more interesting, I think. Because Jude Law, God bless him, I love him so much, is just kind of like hanging out. Yeah, mostly what I was thinking about when he was there was like, I just kept thinking, yeah, I really like the young Pope. Not really thinking about his actual role. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Me too. And thinking like, his hairline isn't isn't quite that good. It's not, it's further back. Like they CGI'd that forward a little bit. That was my thought process when he was on screen. And also, like, the twist happens, and I, for a long chunk of that scene, was like, is he really good, though? Meaning, meaning Ben Mendelsohn's character when he's explaining. Oh, yeah, me too. I was like, is this a double cross? Because he's so good. <laughs> right. And then it goes on for some time, and you realize that it, it isn't. And it just felt like there, if they had just invested more energy into that whole situation, they could have done a lot more with it in an interesting way because obviously there's a lot of sort of refugee theme stuff that is very germane to our current political moment mm-hmm. that felt unexploited to me in like the good sense of exploitation like they could have been more interesting well they they didn't i was surprised that they didn't dig deeper into that because it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have needed a particularly long scene they could even have done it based on sort of just pure performance reaction shots during the final section when she's fighting back against her former allies at the Cree, because if you think about like recent pop culture, obviously She-Ra has a much smaller audience than this, but She-Ra, in a very kid-friendly way, explores this idea in a very thoughtful and emotional way, kind of the idea that you can be fighting a war that isn't actually morally right, and you think it's right because that's how you've been indoctrinated. But also fucking Star Wars. Everyone who has watched this movie will have seen Finn's journey in Star Wars, which doesn't actually get a huge amount of complex screen time, but is still very emotionally and politically resonant. And it's about him, you know, breaking free from being a stormtrooper. And that is what her story is in this. But instead, they just sort of like wrap it up with like a big scene where she does some cool superpowers and then has a feminist girl power moment of over kind of overcoming the relationship she had with her mentor. And it just would have been much more interesting to me if they kind of dug into that more. 
yeah, it would have fit in with some of the themes of of, of Captain America and Iron Man sort of discussing the US military because they're both about like the fallibility of the military industrial complex. And this is a perfect way to talk about that without actually even having to literally be doing commentary on the Air Force because because right. <laughs> after all the stuff with this movie being like, yeah, it's so cool that she's an Air Force pilot. Okay, you don't want to directly critique the US military. You can shift all of that over onto the Cree because it's the same issue where it's like, you believe because you've been told that you're, the war you're fighting is just, but in fact it is not. Yeah, it just, it did feel like there was a big sort of gap, which was too bad. And, uh, I mean, the whole concluding sequence I found just kind of exhausting. I mean, the, as you, as we know, final acts of these movies are almost always bad. But I think one of the problems with the movie also, and obviously this is coming from the comics, to some degree, I don't know exactly what her her powers are in the comics, is, like, she just can do anything. <laughs> like, there are just no rules limiting her capabilities at a certain point. Well, you can say the same thing of Superman. Oh, yes, sure. But it makes it not interesting to watch at a certain point for me, where she literally is just, like, flying into space and then, like, busting out, like, blowing up anything. She can heat a, a, you know, a kettle. She can do whatever. It, it wasn't engaging for me to watch because there were no, there were no rules. And it's so helpful to have limitations on this stuff. Like, even Superman stuck in kryptonite, right? Like, there's, there's something. As I said to someone last night talking about this, like, Magneto can only move metal. Like, it's just, it's just metal. It's the one thing. And in this, it became just so... And I know she can fly in space. I've seen that in the comics. Like, I was expecting that to happen at the end of this movie, which she did. But it just became so kind of much that I was, like, becoming excessive. Sure. And not just that it felt excessive, but also that literally in terms of how the scene or the, the battle is structured... They're just kind of shooting energy at each other and then flying around. And that's just not interesting to watch. It's just not like, oh. Um, and that goes on for some time, which I did not care for. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, I was like, there's something I'm forgetting. Was that the Star Wars thing you said reminded me that there's so much of the sort of last section of this movie that's very Star Wars also. One of the few moments of this film where I was like, you've actually done something interesting stylistically here, which is a rarity in most MCU films, not a particular dig at Captain Marvel. They're generally quite boring to look at. But like, I, I really liked the kind of the piloting scene that Maria gets where she's piloting in between canyons because it was just so like, this is Star Wars. It was a Star Wars moment, but it was sort of an interesting twist because it was kind of to these characters... Earth is an alien planet and also they kind of combined a little bit of soundtrack music that was a little bit like the Star Wars fanfare and I was like this is a nice subtle reference that is not like a direct pop culture reference that feels corny like Guardians of the Galaxy. Subtle reference is not the phrase I would use. I mean compared to fucking Guardians of the Galaxy where they just like quote random TV shows and music. (laughs) I mean sure but like the flying in the Grand Canyon was the most Star Warsy thing Come on. And there were a number of other things also that like, I don't know, I thought it was fine, but there was so much stuff that at a certain point I kind of felt like, okay. I mean, it was a film that was, I think there was more input from the Marvel Studios infrastructure than in Black Panther, where it's very clearly the artistic vision is like, (laughs) it's like night and day. Because this film is two directors who have not done this kind of action-y, big blockbuster-y stuff before. 
but also don't necessarily have like a really intensive vision that we saw with someone like Patty Jenkins. So yeah, I think you can definitely see points where like Marvel Studios has just been like, let's bring in the people who are good at doing a CGI explosion. They've done, I think I've only actually ever seen one of their other movies, which is amazing because I love it so much. They did Half Nelson with Ryan Gosling in 2006, horrifyingly, 13 years ago, for which she got nominated for an Oscar. And um, it's just an astounding, astounding movie. And they've done a couple other films that I've sort of always meant to see and haven't. They're revered indie film Mm -hmm. directors. Um, Their last movie was Ben Mendelsohn was in, which is why he's in this film too. And they've been working for a long time. They've done a lot of television. But it's not like they are they don't know what they're doing. I mean, it just there were just a couple of moments in this film that made me think of, in the lead up to the release of Captain Marvel, there was an interview with an acclaimed, but by mainstream standards, extremely obscure European independent female filmmaker, where she talked about how she had gone to a meeting with like a dozen other women filmmakers with Marvel, where they were essentially trying to recruit female directors. And she had a meeting with them where they just told her outright, oh, don't worry if you don't know how to do action, we'll just do all of that for you. And she was like, I'm out. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which I think is something that people aren't necessarily aware of. My point is that Ryan Coogler had done Creed, which was bigger, but still not a huge budget. Mm -hmm. And then Taika Waititi had not done anything big at all Mm -hmm. um, when he did Ragnarok. But for whatever reason, they obviously just decided that the two of them were going to be able to do whatever the fuck they wanted with those properties. With Thor, I think it probably was, like, obviously Taika Waititi is an unbelievably powerful personality and proved himself very good at working with the studio. But I think because that was such an established property and sort of like the weird one. that they And also were he moved like, the entire sure. production to fucking Australia. Which he yeah. literally talked about. He's like, yeah, they can't tell me as much as what to do if I'm on the other side of the world in a different time zone. <laughs> right. Um, whereas this, like, obviously Black Panther was a new thing also, but that whole situation was such a sort of intense... I mean, Black Panther is a completely unique. There is no other film that is like that in terms of just the... Yeah, you could write like a whole book on the way that he works with his collaborators and the way that he kind of... Well, yeah. I, I meant more in terms of the public perception going oh, yeah. in. Uh-huh. That they needed to just hire someone who was going to be great and then let him do his thing, right? Whereas this, it's also a new character. It's a woman. They don't want to fuck that up. And she's important for the next round of stuff. So it seems to me, I mean, maybe the directors kind of just didn't know what they were doing about certain things, but my sense is that the studio interfered a lot with a lot of stuff they didn't make it sexist the film is not sexist so well done (laughs) yeah i mean (laughs) it's not like it was offensive but i it felt very much to me like a sort of producer movie and not a director movie and i think that's where a lot of the problems come in because it's like and a lot of the mcu movies are like that you can kind of picture someone being like, I think we need to explain this more clearly in case the, in case the audience doesn't know what the Kree Supreme Intelligence is. And it's like, I can infer it from context. <laughs> I can work it no out. No one cares. <laughs> no one cares. Oh, well. Lots, most people like this, though, so I'm in the minority. I hope we've not fine. lost a bunch of listeners. I know I lost followers for the temerity of giving this film an average review. <laughs> I tweeted out my negative comment at uh, one in the morning last night. So, uh... Presumably no one saw it, and then I guess they'll hear this and unfollow me, so 
it's fine. I've never held back my negative opinions about things, so well, why neither have I. I, I just now? then feel very bad because other people get sad. <laughs> I don't have that gene in me, so uh, it's fine. It's, I don't like these movies very much anymore. But in a couple of weeks, we will be watching Captain America: The Winter Soldier for the fifth anniversary. Isn't that terrifying? fifth anniversary of its release i didn't know we were timing it so well well done (laughs) i know impressive and recording a commentary track so that will be auspicious yes thank you to the patreon person who is paying for us to do this yes we're very excited as i think i said on twitter it will be great for everyone whose dream it has been to watch that film and not hear any of the dialogue because i assume that we will be talking. Oh, we will have a lot to say on every millisecond of this film. <laughs> Higher thing. Yes, we great. In the meantime, next week... We are going to be doing a very long-awaited episode, which is about one of my two favourite TV shows of all time alongside Black Sails. We are going to be talking about Hannibal, the NBC show, um, which is a masterpiece. I am the world's biggest Hannibal fan, along with everyone else who's the world's biggest Hannibal fan. Um, this is something that we actually also had requested on Patreon, but I think it's like just a, a very kind of popular choice that we get asked about very regularly. Obviously, I'm a complete expert in this and have watched the whole thing, like, I think three times now. Morgan's only watched the first two seasons, but she's going to pop in and watch a couple of key episodes so we can talk about this. Um, so yeah, next week, Hannibal, tell your friends. We got this request a few months ago and we're sort of finally catching up with the last that we had pre pre Oscar season. And um, I, we got this request and I was like, Oh, Gav's dream has come true at last. <laughs> Cause I was never going to watch the whole last season of Hannibal. But yeah. now I've been to Hannibal be conventions. To the longest episodes. fanfic I've ever written is for Hannibal. I'm currently in a room which contains a very expensive prop from the Hannibal TV show. The only piece of merchandise I've ever purchased. <laughs> So um, I would say our speaking proportions next week, I will be maybe at 20% and you'll be at 80 and that's like optimistic for me. That's my anticipation. Um, so that will be, will be entertaining. So tune in for that, listeners, next week. Um, thank you for listening to our not very positive review of Captain Marvel this week. We appreciate you as ever. Um, If you would like to subscribe to our Patreon, uh, you can find that at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, We would also greatly appreciate a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast service you use. It really helps us find new listeners. And Gabia, where can our listeners find your work online? Uh, You can find me on The Daily Dot, where I've written a review of this movie and also um, an article about how the marketing campaign was kind of a little bit like Air Force propaganda. And you can also find me on Twitter, where I am hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are also at OverinvestedPodcast.com and on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. Thanks. Bye.